among the tribes in Central and Southern Africa, where I was born and where I grew up, and where a part of my heart always rests, there is a tradition that touched me deeply when I first heard of it and continues to do so even to this day, so far away. Shortly after her wedding day, the young bride leaves the hustle and bustle of her village, leaves her husband and goes off and finds a quiet place. Perhaps she goes to a river and sits beside the water or she sits under a tree or in the tall grass. And there she listens. She listens until she hears the chords, the melody, the words of her firstborn child that hasn't even yet been conceived. And when she hears and knows that song really completely, she returns to the village and she shares it with her husband. And it's the song that accompanies their lovemaking when the child is conceived. And it's sung all the way through the pregnancy as this infant is slowly developing into his or her self. And it's sung by the midwives as they gather around the bed of the birthing mother and it's a song that greets the infant into the human realm. It's sung when she feeds that child for the first time at her breast, and sung all through the weaning of, of the baby. It's sung perhaps by the father when he comes home at night and cradles the infant in his arms as they watch the setting African sun over the horizon, perhaps. And this is the song that is sung at all the important moments of this child's life. It's the song that's sung certainly on birthdays and through the rituals of puberty and adolescence as the child grows into adulthood. It's sung at the wedding of the young boy or and the young woman, their songs together are sung at the wedding. And the song accompanies them all through life until its conclusion. And the final times that it's sung is around the bed of the dying old woman or old man. And then for a final time, it is sung as the body is buried in the ground and soil is thrown on it for the final and last time. It was on a misty mountaintop in a place called the Valley of a Thousand Hills in Zululand, South Africa, that I heard the teachings of the Buddha 21 years ago for the first time. And for me, from the moment I heard the teachings, I realized and began practicing the meditation, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the practice of meditation was going to be my particular way of beginning to remember and hear my own song that I felt I'd completely lost. This was in a place called Ikopo, in the Valley of a Thousand Hills, where Alan Payton based his novel, Cry the Beloved Country. Perhaps some of you are familiar with that novel. He says, in the, in the opening paragraphs, he says, there is a lovely road that runs from Ikopo into the hills. These hills are grass-covered and rolling, and they are lovely beyond any singing of it. The road climbs seven miles into them to Caris Brook, and from there, if there is no mist, 
if you look down on one of the fairest valleys in all of Africa. About you there is grass and bracken, and you may hear the forlorn crying of the Titahoya, one of the birds of the felt. Below you is the valley of the Umzumkulu, and on its journey from the Drakensberg to the sea, you see beyond and behind the river great hill after great hill, and beyond and behind them the mountains of Ngeli and East Griqualand. The grass is rich and matted. You cannot see the soil. It holds the rain and the mist, and they seep into the ground, feeding the streams in every kloof. It is well tended, and not too many cattle feed upon it. Not too many fires burn it, laying bare the soil. Stand unshod upon it, for the ground is holy, being even as it came from the Creator. Keep it, guard it, care for it, for it keeps men, guards men, cares for men. Destroy it, and man is destroyed. This is where I sat my first retreat and where I subsequently went on to spend the next year of my life. And during that year, there was just this developing yearning to know who I was beyond all the expectations that I had of myself, all the expectations that my family and my friends had of me, and all the expectations of the society into which I was born. Who am I? I wanted to know beyond Gavin, the white South African, Gavin, the certified public accountant. Mm. And over the years, it seems as though even though some of those labels have gone away, there is still this tendency, this capacity of mind to take on new labels. And so to look at those two, to move beyond Gavin, the, the meditator, Gavin, the meditation teacher, Gavin, the author, the artist. I want so much to live a life that is authentic and true to my own son that mercifully and blessedly, after so long, begins to emerge bright and clear through the clouds of forgetfulness that have kept it hidden so long. And if there is one thing that feels absolutely certain to me, beyond the shadow of a doubt, is that there is only one juncture when we human beings can truly hear the chords and the strains and the melodies of our song, and that is in the present moment. In this continuum of time, past with all its history and all its storm and all its drum and all its memories. Through the brief present moment into the kaleidoscope of the future with all its dreams and its illusions and its projections, there is only one point where our song can be heard, and that is in the present moment. And I think for all of us, if our song is true, if it is truly the deepest expression of who we are, that song brings to us intimations and a promise of a love that is completely free of all conditions. <clears throat> Certainly, my song promises an intimacy with myself, with others, and with the world that is quite beyond my imagination. Our song, I feel, must offer us a real happiness that is completely free and apart from the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And that our song has to and must promise us that peace which passeth all understanding, way beyond our notion of what this must be. So important is it, I feel, that I, we, if I may speak collectively, learn increasingly to populate each moment of life and relinquish 
our fascination and preoccupation with the past and the future. So if I could go back to that beloved mountaintop in Zululand for a moment, what I also see in retrospect is when I heard and was so excited by the teachings of the Buddha, I felt that I kind of had found my way and turned myself fair and square against the religiosity of my childhood, against the Christian boarding school and all that that entailed growing up. I felt that I'd found my way. And increasingly over the last years as I let go and developed the capacity to let go of these labels as they've constellated around me, Gavin the Buddhist and Gavin the Meditator, I find myself opening to a golden thread that seems to run through all of the great spiritual traditions. A thread that is indivisible between the teachings of the Buddha and the teachings of the great masters. And for me, that is the ultimate celebration as I reconnect with the life of Jesus Christ and others way beyond my notion of what I thought uh, these teachings were all about. And the golden thread again and again, whether it's the Kabbalists or the Sufis, whether it's the Christian mystics, the Gnostics, or the Benedictine monks, this, the message is all the same. Come out of the past, come out of the future, and come to the present moment where there is succulent possibility of everything that we have yearned and prayed for for so long. And this, of course, is the essence of the meditation practice, beginning to bring ourselves again and again, the willingness to begin us again and again, to start again in the present moment. We're beginning to come back home. We're beginning to come to the place where everything is possible. But if we may together if for a moment reflect that this preoccupation that we as a species, a human species, this preoccupation, this addiction even that we have to the past and the future, bears some really tragic consequences. So many human beings, almost all human beings, live exclusively through memory and through anticipation. And this compulsion leaves us with two very treacherous illusions, which are so easy to bring into the practice of meditation. The first one is our preoccupation with the past leaves us with all manner of identities that are based on history, that are gone, that are dead, that are a corpse, and that we now are dragging around with us, that are preventing us from the very thing that we yearn for most. And the other treacherous illusion of this compulsion is our fascination with the future. It leaves us with the notion that salvation and fulfillment are something that lie ahead that they are not immediate, that they're going to come sometime along the line, and that we are readying ourselves for that now. And so once again, we jettison the present moment. We live in the future, and we deny ourselves what it is that we most yearn for. The Buddha, in perhaps his most important teaching, the first one after his enlightenment, he spoke about the, the wheel of samsara, what it is that keeps us as human beings on the cycle of birth and death, endless eons of, of being born, suffering, and dying. And he said the spokes of this wheel that turn are three. He said greed, hatred, and delusion are the forces in our mind that keep this wheel turning and perpetuate the suffering that seems so endless. And if we reflect for a moment what it is that takes us into the past, into our fascination with history, into our 
our memories, into our recriminations, into our anger of what happened, all of that. It is these, these forces of greed, hatred, and delusion involved in memory. We bring them into the present almost like a light that guides us now. And it's almost like there's a kind of pollution that happens in the present moment. We brought the past in. It's not fresh. It's not alive. It's not succulent. It's no longer full of possibilities. And so too with the future. Greed, hatred, and delusion feel are the forces that, that <clears throat> take us into the future where we, where we yearn for security, where we want so much to be able to choreograph what it is that unfolds. And each of those endeavors, if we've lived long enough, and perhaps all of us have, we see again and again the futility of trying to arrange the future. The only place where the future can be impacted is how we are living each moment of life right now. Life can only be lived in the present moment. And I feel that any spiritual practice, and certainly Buddhism does not uh, offer the only one, that would be an unthinkable arrogance. But I think any spiritual practice, whether it's the contemplative prayer of the Christian mystics, whether it's the whirling of the dervishes, whether it's the mantras or whatever, if that practice brings us to the present moment, totally where we are living in the only juncture where life can be truly lived, then that is a practice of liberation. But unfortunately, we are so schooled by the habitual patterns of our mind that no, so often what we bring into the future, uh, into the present moment, is, has all manner of traces from the past. And somehow the practice has to deliver us from these shadows and traces that we bring forward. Shunru Suzuki, the great Zen master who died in 1971, who established the first actual Zen training center outside of, the, uh, of Japan, he spoke about it in this way in his book, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He says, in order not to leave any traces, when you do something, you should do it with your whole body and your whole mind. You should be concentrated on what you do. You should do it completely like a good bonfire. You should not be a smoky fire. You should burn yourself out completely. If you do not burn yourself completely, a trace of yourself will be left in what you do. You will have something remaining which is not completely burnt out. Zen activity is activity which is completely burned out with nothing remaining but ashes. And this is the goal of our practice. Jesus in Luke spoke very eloquently of, of how it is that we incline to the past and how it is that that inclination obviates the possibility of us knowing what he called the kingdom of God, the peace, the possible understanding, freedom. There's the story where he's like traveling through this town, and this is in Luke where he says, uh, this man comes up to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lie down and rest. And then he says to another man, follow me. And this man says, sir, but first, let me go back and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God right now. And another man said, I will follow you, sir. But first, let me go and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, anyone who starts to plow and then keeps looking back is of no use for the kingdom of God. If we start to plow, we cannot look back. 
And he also spoke so beautifully about the fixation with the future. He says, and why worry about your clothes? This is in Matthew. He says, look how the wildflowers grow. They do not work or make clothes for themselves, but I tell you that not even King Solomon with all his wealth had clothes as beautiful as one of these flowers. So do not start worrying where will my food come from or my drink or my clothes. He says, do not worry about tomorrow. It will have enough worries of its own. There is no need to add to the troubles that each day brings. Bringing us back to the present moment. And really, this shift is really a shift in perspective that can only be lived. It really can't be figured out. You know, we're such creatures, you know, that love to figure things out and surmise things and things, you know, that can be deducted by thought and deliberation. But really, this is something altogether different. This is more in the domain of the heart, of the intuition. What the Zen masters have called no mind, where we, we, we drop out of trying to figure it out to a place of being, a place of awareness, a place of presence, the very essence of, of the mystical life. And it's this tightrope, perhaps you have a sense of it, this, this tightrope between all of the past and all of the future, both dreams, you know, the past is gone. We can't do anything in the past, it's all gone, you know. And we can't do anything in the future. It's just an ino- a notion. It's this razor's edge. And the whole practice is about bringing us to that edge where everything is possible. Hillel, the great Kabbalistic Hebrew scholar, put it so clearly. He said, if not me, who? If not now, when? So simple. And so the practice of meditation is essentially and in essence about bringing us here, now, totally. Those of you who know me know that I love the Sufis. And uh, the Sufis have this saying where they say the dervish or the Sufi is the child of time present. The Sufi is the child of time present. And Rumi, the great 13th century poet, put it another way. He said, past and future veil God from our sight. Past and future veil God from our sight. Perhaps you're beginning to get a sense of of this thread that just runs through all of these incredible teachings golden thread. And so if you're anything like me, one of the things that pulls me most successfully out of the present moment is thinking. And it's so easy, you know, in the meditation after a while, where, you know, you just see it's like you're watching the thought and I mean, you're watching the breath, and then you're on a thought, and you come back, and then you're on another thought. And it's so easy, even in very subtle ways, to develop a kind of a relationship with thinking that is aversive, where you think, oh, thinking is bad, you know, thinking is wrong. I've got it. The, the purpose of meditation is to get rid of thinking. And it can be very subtle, or it can be very gross. And so it's really important to emphasize that really it's not that thinking is bad. The problem is our relationship with thinking. We need to be able to think. There are times when we need to puzzle things out, we need to work things out and figure things out, the budget, the program, the this, the that, timetable. But thinking only has a place. The trouble is that almost all human beings on our planet feel victimized by their thinking. It's like thinking is the master. 
and that it's almost like we are we are blown around like leaves in the wind by the thoughts that come and go. Thinking is a very useful tool. But how is it that we can relate to thinking in a way that brings us to the present moment and that it doesn't remove us from that landscape of possibility that we all yearn for? And so in the unfolding of the instructions today, I'll talk a little more about the relationship with thinking. But essentially, thinking is no more personal than a sensation in the body, a sound outside, a smell, a taste, a leaf on a tree. And so the unfolding of the practice is to bring us increasingly to that place where we see the process of thinking for what it is and that we are no longer hoodwinked and victimized by the thinking. And of course, the saddest part of thinking is that so many of us carry patterns of thinking that are so harsh and so unforgiving. And so as we believe that our thoughts have some truth and validity to them, we believe these thoughts and they crucify us and they decimate us and can be so hurtful. And in this respect, I feel that the meditation practice is so ultimately empowering because we begin to see that even the most self-crucifying thoughts are no more personal than the sounds outside of this meditation hall. And so too with emotions. So often for us it's emotions that take us out of the present moment. We get so caught up and wrapped up in emotions. Anger comes up and they, they bring thoughts and we drag the past into the present and we become embroiled in that. And that whole constellation, that whole creation completely removes us from the present moment where everything is possible. And so too with emotions. The practice must bring us to a place where we begin to relate to these energies in a way of wisdom, in a way of understanding. We see that they too are no more personal and that they don't have the capacity to remove us from the present moment. And the thoughts and the emotions are so intimate, perhaps you've noticed. It's like a strong emotion comes up here and then you start thinking about it, which generates more fear and then there's more thoughts and so there's the whole cycle. The meditation offers the possibility of relating to these cycles, these, these arisings, in a way that's freeing rather than a bondage. Shudru Suzuki, again, has this great uh, piece where he talks about the marrow of Zen. Marrow of Zen. He says, suppose your children are suffering from a hopeless disease. You do not know what to do. You cannot lie in bed. Normally the most comfortable place for you would be a warm, comfortable bed. But now because of your mental agony, you cannot rest. You may walk up and down, in and out, but this does not help. Actually, the best way to relieve your mental suffering is to sit in meditation, even in such a confused state of mind and bad posture. If you have no experience of sitting in this kind of difficult situation, you are not a Zen student. No other activity will appease your suffering. In other restless positions, you have no power to accept your difficulties. But in meditation, which you have acquired by your diligence and by your efforts, your mind and body have great power to accept things as they are, whether they are agreeable or disagreeable. The capacity to accept things as they are, whether they are agreeable or disagreeable. If I could speak personally for a moment, unquestionably one of the most touching, blessed and moving cycles in the unfolding of the meditation practice in my experience is when the mind begins to develop its automatic 
excuse me, when the mind begins to relinquish its automatic fixation with the past and the future, and just inclines increasingly instinctively towards the present moment, it feels like a release from lifetimes and lifetimes of incarceration. And I feel that the meditation practice offers us such a powerful and potent tool for developing the capacity and the willingness to be aware of the present moment and to also be aware of how it is that we avoid what is going on, how it is that we deny and circumvent what is perhaps disagreeable to us. Opening in the meditation practice, and we'll do that over the course of the day to difficult feelings and emotion, opening to discomfort with what's going on and resistance and aversion. How we escape habitually from what it is arising moment to moment. And this is nothing new. I'm sure if we had the capacity to look back over the centuries and eons, we'll see that humankind has perennially grappled with this question. And the question is that we yearn so much for fulfillment. We yearn so much for peace and freedom. And yet, we jettison the possibility by not populating the only landscape where that's possible. T.S. Eliot, the great poet, he died in 1965. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. In his great work, The Four Quartets, this is how he starts The Four Quartets, this beginning of this long, deep descent into uh, his sort of existential hell and trying to figure out the meaning of life. And this is how he starts it. He says, time present, time past are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual <coughs> possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the rose garden. And then he ends this particular stanza of this first of the quartets, Bernd Norton. He says, which I think is just among the most stirring pieces of writing, he says, um, go, go, go. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. There never will be and there never has been a time when your life is not lived in the present moment. And I feel that the heart of this recalibration as human beings, this heart of the recalibration to the present moment has to do with acceptance and has to do with surrender. What Shunru Suzuki said, uh, he says, your mind and body have great power to accept things as they are, whether they are agreeable or disagreeable. Accepting things as they are brings us right into the present moment. Letting go of our agenda for the way things 
used to, uh, the, the way we would like things to be. Letting go of all of the labels, letting go of all of the identities, I feel begins to liberate that song that we all yearn so much to hear that I think if I might boldly perhaps say what brought us here today was to hear how song, to know deeply and truly who we are. And this capacity to accept, to surrender to the present moment does not imply some sort of docility that we don't act in the world. I feel that we can be more dependable and more trustworthy in our world when our action is birthed initially from a place of acceptance and acknowledgement of things just the way they are. It's my sense that the truly religious woman or man, not the one who walks through the doors of a temple or a church or a, a synagogue for a few hours a week and then behaves whatever way she or he might want to for the rest of the week. The truly religious person committed to living a decent life moment to moment accepts what is here and now not waiting for something else to happen. This life as it is now. Not complaining about the way things are. Opening to life. Whatsoever this is, I accept it. Moment by present moment, life is accepted. And just with this acceptance, I think we as human beings are reborn. We are born again, and for us, there is a new world. In uh, John, there's this great like interaction with Nicodemus, where uh, he was one of the Pharisees, and he came to Jesus and said to him, we know that you're a teacher and sent by God. No one can perform the miracles you're doing unless God was with you. And Jesus answered, I'm telling you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again. And then, how can a grown man be born again, Nicodemus asked. He certainly cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time. I'm telling you the truth, replied Jesus, that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the Spirit. A person is born physically of human parents, but he's born spiritually of the Spirit. And I sense that what he's talking about, the spirit, this rebirth, is how we as human beings relate to life, the world around us, and to ourselves. That is, I feel, what is being reborn. Because it's like when our relationship with life is different, when our eyes are different, the whole world is different. Because the world is not the case. The way we look is the case. The way we approach life is the case. The way we relate to the present moment is the case. And our capacity to accept and to surrender to what is, is the case. Hafiz, my other great beloved, uh, and I can talk about Hafiz forever, but I lived for a while in Shiraz, where Hafiz was born in the 14th century. And maybe later in the treaty, I can tell you a few stories about him. But this is what he says about where you are right now. He says, this place where you are right now, God circled on a map for you. Wherever your eyes and arms and heart can move against the earth and sky, the beloved has bowed there. Our beloved has bowed there knowing you were coming. I can tell you a priceless secret about your real worth, dear pilgrim. But any unkindness to yourself, any confusion about others, will keep you from accepting the grace, the love, the sublime freedom that divine knowledge always is ready to offer you. Never mind and he talks to himself here, never mind, Hafiz, about the great requirements this path demands of the wayfarers. For your soul is too full of wine tonight 
to withhold the wondrous truth from this world. And when Hafiz talks about wine, he's talking about drunk on God, on the love of God. He says, but because, he's talking, I am so clever and generous. He says, I have already clearly woven a resplendent lark of God's tresses as a remarkable truth and gift into this poem just for you now. This place where you are right now, God circled on a map for you. How are we doing? We're getting there. So in 1945, in a place called Nahamadi in northern Egypt, a peasant in a cave looking for uh, a soil for his vegetable garden came upon these great big earthenware pots. And within them were all of these manuscripts, which uh, by a long adventure eventually found their way to, to the appropriate people. And these turned out to be the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, documents written about Christ in the first century after he was born. So they've been completely unmediated by all of the events and, and uh, discussions and deliberations uh, over the last 2,000 years. And these Gnostic Gospels speak to a Christ that is almost indistinguishable from the one of the Bible. I'd like to just read to you a few words from the Gnostic Gospels. Jesus said, if those who lead you say to you, see the kingdom of God is in heaven, then the birds of heaven will precede you. If they say to you, the kingdom of God is in the sea, then the fish will precede you. But the kingdom of God is within you and without you now. If you will know yourselves, then you will be known and you will know that you are the sons of the living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you are in poverty, and you are poverty. And then he says in another part of the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of St. Thomas, because there were lots of different Gospels found. He says, I am the light that is above them all, Cleave a piece of wood, and I am there. Lift up a stone, and you will find me there. So immediate, so present, so total, so alive now. So in closing this talk, lest all of this sound very self-centered and myopic, perhaps, and selfish, and self-involved, I really, I really think it's not the case at all. It seems to me on reflection that our allegiance to the past and our fixation so often on a better world to come, on an ideal future, on a brave new utopian world that's going to happen sometime in the future, this allegiance to past and future has birthed tragic waves of nationalism, ideology, religious arrogance, and political systems. All of these foundation on the dream of a better world someday other than in this moment, promising plentitude and fulfillment and liberation and happiness in the future. And in the course of applying this fixation on the future, millions and countless millions of human beings have perished in war and genocide, in torture, in endless violence, and intolerance. That is such a sobering reflection for me. And I feel that we as human beings could not treat this planet in the cavalier way that we do if we lived in the present moment and were totally conscious 
of every decision that we made that related to this beloved mother on which we all have the privilege to live. If we ignore the present moment, I feel we are at the same time contributing in some measure to the decimation of this world. Alan Payton, intimating the years of apartheid into which I was born in South Africa and the unimaginable violence of those years when a few white people inflicted their dream of a white Christian privileged nation on my beloved country and all its people. In, he continued, I just would like to complete the paragraph I started this talk with. He says, where you stand, the grass is rich and matted and you cannot see the soil, but the rich green hills now break down. They fall to the valley below and falling change their nature. For they grow red and bare, they cannot hold the rain and mist, and the streams are dry in the kloofs. Too many cattle feed upon the grass, too many fires have burnt it. Stand shod upon it, for it is coarse and sharp, and the stones cut under the feet. It is not kept or guarded or cared for. It no longer keeps men, guards men, cares for men. Earth has torn away like flesh. The lightning flashes over them, the clouds pour down upon them, the dead streams come to life, full of the red blood of the earth. Down in the valleys, women scratch the soil that is left, and the maze hardly reaches the height of a man. They are valleys of old men and old women, of mothers and children. The men are away, the young men and the girls are away, for the soil cannot keep them anymore. Over the last year particularly, my life has become increasingly evolved with the honu, with the Hawaiian green sea turtle been involved in conservation work with these beloved creatures. And in a conversation with an elder a couple of months ago, he told me that the Hawaiian word for the planet, for the earth, is honua. And so he said to me, the honu and the green sea turtle and the honua, the planet, have the same derivative. And he said to me, he said, whenever he sees a green sea turtle and reflects on its fragile hold on life in these waters and on our planet, the turtle mirrors the fragility of this world. And so the turtle mirrors the fragility of the world. The fragility of the world is mirrored by the turtle. That touched me so deeply. So I'd like to end with T.S. Eliot, if I may. So he goes through all of these four quartets, this deep, stirring search for meaning in life, a real existential dark night of the soul. And this is how he concludes the four quartets. This is the last section from Little Gidding, the fourth of the quartets. He says, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of a hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now, here, always. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well 
all manner of things shall be well when the tons of flame are enfolded into the crown knot of fire and the fire and the rose are one. May we sit together for a moment, please. This place where you are right now, God circled on a map for you. Wherever your eyes and arms and heart can move against the earth and sky, the Beloved has bowed there. Our Beloved has bowed there knowing you were coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.